0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, you as cashback. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal or go to rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R A K U T E N. This is the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell.
1: There is a growing mystery surrounding the disappearance of a Saudi journalist who's been critical of Saudi Arabia's powerful crown prince. Washington Post contributor Jamal Khashoggi vanished in Turkey after entering the Saudi consulate. Turkish officials reportedly obtained recordings proving how Khashoggi was killed. The Post reports American officials are aware of the audio and the video footage.
0: Something like that should not be allowed to happen. Something like that should not happen. And we intend to get to the bottom of it.
1: Mike Vickers was the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence during the Obama administration, making him one of the most senior intelligence officers in government at the time. I recently sat down to talk to Mike about the whole range of national security issues facing the country, one of which was the currently unfolding situation in the Middle East with regard to the disappearance of U.S. resident and Washington Post contributor Jamal Khashoggi. Given the timeliness of that issue, we wanted to distribute Mike's comments today about it as a special edition of Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Mike, let's talk for a moment about what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening with regard to the disappearance of U.S. resident and Washington Post Contributor Jamal Khashoggi. We're undoubtedly the administration is hearing things from the Turkish side about what it knows and thinks it knows, and hearing from the Saudi side about what it thinks it knows. And if if you were part of the President's national security team, I'm sure you would want us to have some independent information of our own. So what would you what would your advice be to the U.S. government about how do we get the president here, some information, some independent information that can help him inform him on what the heck's happening?
0: Sure. So one, you know, I don't know this. Uh, you know, I don't have any intelligence uh, on the situation, but the U.S. government may already know something about what Yeah, we happened. just don't know. We just don't know. But there's reasonable odds that they know more than they're saying, right? But it's likely still an incomplete picture that can be filled in by one partners if we can get them to cooperate. and you mentioned the Turkish case who may have valuable intelligence that can can shed light on this. And also, as you know from your history, sometimes, while it may be difficult to immediately collect new information right as a crisis because the target tightens up. Over time you may get more, and the question is whether it's timely, but also sometimes you can look back a bit at things you may have missed and, you know, as you know better than I, and sometimes find really revealing clues. Once you know sort of what you're looking for, you can find.
1: Yeah. One of the, that's a really great point. One of the things that I learned as an analyst is that when something happens, when there's a discontinuity, it's almost always really helpful to go back and read the intelligence that came in before the discontinuity and you can see signs, right, in that intelligence that you, did that, that you completely missed the first time right. because there was no context. There was
0: no context. Exactly. So that is a
1: great point. Yeah.
0: So that's what I would be doing if I were back in my – if we were back in our intelligence jobs. That's what I think we'd be working on together.
1: And I do think, Ryan, I think you would agree that it's incredibly important for the U.S. to have an independent view here for the president about what exactly happened inside that consulate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean again to have, you know, high confidence, we would want multiple uh, reliable sources as well and it's it's the duty of our intelligence community to provide that uh, to the president.
1: And I think one one thing to remind people of here is that it takes time. Yeah. Right? I remember I remember when Bashar al-Assad first used chemical weapons, first used sarin against his own people, the intelligence community fairly quickly came to a judgment that he indeed did that but it had low confidence because mm-hmm. we didn't have richness of sources. Right. And there were some outstanding questions. And right. it, took, it took a number of months to right. get from low confidence to high confidence right? about that. So there is this timing element and there is this question of what's your level of confidence in the judgment that you're making?
0: Right. Well, and you, I know you remember too in the uh, attack on our facilities in Benghazi, it took us 10 days essentially to really sort out what exactly we thought happened. There were clues at the beginning, but the narrative changed a bit. The, the 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 analytical line changed a bit, which was challenging for policymakers and others. But that's just the way intelligence evolves. Right. Okay, let's talk
1: about what the U.S. should do here, right? I mean, and, and there's kind of two, two possibilities, right? One is we learn that the Turkish story about what happened is more or less what turns out to be the case, right? That this individual. Jamal was was actually killed inside the consulate. That's one possibility that we learn that and have confidence in it. And then what, what should the U.S. government do in that case? And I guess the other possibility is that we really don't learn a heck of a lot more. And there's these competing narratives, right, about what happened. And what should the U.S. do in that case? From a policy perspective, what would you advise the president in both of those cases?
0: You know, the first case, as we just talked about, is really to just try to know the unfiltered truth and then base policy on that. And so taking the case where what the Turks are claiming turns out to be true and we have high confidence in that from that and 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 potentially other sources then I think there has to be you know Saudi Arabia is a very important Partner of ours, and and we shouldn't forget that. But there has to be consequences. I mean, this is an American legal resident and journalist. If he turns out to be murdered in a gruesome way, then there has to be some consequences for that. And the administration has to put itself on the on the right side of that issue, or it will
1: and those consequences would be a delay in defense sales or something like that.
0: They could be, they could be other restrictions of some kind, but I also think the public diplomacy aspect there has to be tangible consequences as well as verbal consequences. Again, you know, this is this is horrible to contemplate on multiple levels, but if you when you think that you know, all the aggressive things that Russia has been doing to us and around the world and largely with in my view, without sufficient consequence. If you have a U.S. ally that is murdering a legal U.S. resident, you know, you've got a big foreign policy problem that you have to take some form of tangible action. Would so, whether you, it's,
1: Would you think, I mean, I agree with you, would you think that over time, given the strategic importance of our relationship, that we would ultimately get back to normal? Or is this, will there still be long-term consequences to the relationship here?
0: Well, it's, I mean, I think there's two answers to that. One is how it shapes and how it's shaped by our domestic politics. Uh, I don't think you can divorce it really from that consequence, but yes, I think given their importance of an ally, I think over time one would expect once there has been some consequence that, you know, we wouldn't sever the relationship over this. It's just, we, you know, we, we can't do nothing And again, so if you look at Tiananmen Square, 1989 with the Chinese, you know, it set back U.S.-Chinese relations for a period, but then they And we took some
1: significant actions.
0: And we took some significant actions, but, you know, we wanted to, our, our broader strategy was to engage China and make them a responsible stakeholder in the international system. And over time, we reverted back to that strategy. So what
1: if we never get to a good, confident understanding of what happened here? Then what does the president do?
0: Yeah. So then I think you have to be more careful with an ally if you don't have the intelligence or the intelligence turns out to be false. I think there would be very negative repercussions of falsely accusing an ally. I think there still is a potential political problem if there is doubt about it. There's just, you're somewhere in the middle. There's there's inconclusive evidence, but there's doubt. You still can't look indifferent. And so it's, I think it's a so it's more of a difficult political yeah. problem. But I
1: think, I think we will have enough confidence at some point that we know what happened that right. president would be able to decide. Yeah, I right? would bet, I would bet yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah. And then a couple other questions. One is, as important as it is, and I want to make that clear, as important as it is, this is not just about a U.S. resident and a U.S. journalist. This is big geopolitical, geopolitics in the region, right? And potentially politics inside Saudi Arabia. I want to ask you about both of those. So how does this play geopolitically in the region?
0: Well, you already have multiple competitive tensions in the region. Um, So you have, you know, sort of a, a Turkey rivalry with Saudi Arabia that, you know, somewhat stems out of their different perspectives of the Syrian conflict and then other issues toward political Islam and other disputes. You have Iranian-Saudi competition that's been ongoing for decades for supremacy in the region, and the uh, and Iranians will likely try to take advantage of this, particularly in the Shiite-dominated eastern quarter. You know, you've had some of the splintering of the internal friction in the Gulf Cooperation Council between Qatar and UAE, and, and, and so all those things could be exacerbated. None of that benefits the United States. These are all our partners You know this redounds to the benefit of our adversaries, great powers who want more influence in the Middle East, Russia and China, or Iran, Iran. and even jihadists. You know, so this is a this is a problem. I I think getting to the strategic implications of this, that you know, is coming on the back of lots of other things that are tearing the Middle East apart, but it's it's something that really will require skillful diplomacy on our
1: part. And then what about what about domestic politics inside Saudi Arabia?
0: That's harder to say You know, Mohammed bin Salman looks like he's been fairly successful in consolidating power and he has very ambitious development projects and others You know, it's a real break and he
1: understands better than most that Saudi Arabia has to reform if it's going to survive.
0: Right, right. And, you know, he knows the importance of ties with the United States and the West. But he's moved so far so fast and really broken with a lot of Saudi traditions that one has to suspect that, you know, there's... He has his opponents. He has his opponents and vulnerabilities there as well, so... And
1: does this change that dynamic? Does this embolden, do you think, the opponents in any way, given what the U.S. might have to... Have to do in response.
0: Yeah, I think it's a combination of that. You know, it will make others more fearful, but perhaps then cross a point where they become intolerant, given other actions and more active opposition, as well. And that may be fed by, you know, what the what the response is or what the what the pressure is. But you know, the the risk that any young leader takes is that you know it's the old guys basically saying, "We told you so." And you went too far and here's what you did. And it's you know, it's it's not just this incident which may be the catalyst, but it's it's a lot of others since right, seizing power. Right,
1: right. And maybe a final question, Mike, is if the United States doesn't push back on this kind of behavior in different parts of the world, or if the United States embraces authoritarians and doesn't preach democracy, doesn't preach human rights and freedom and human dignity, then do we make ourselves more vulnerable for these kinds of things?
0: Yes. Is there, so. is there a think,
1: causation there?
0: Yes. Yeah, so I think two things. One, in the American tradition, you know, we balance between idealism and realism and foreign policy. And whenever you get too far out of balance on either one, your foreign policy is likely to be unsuccessful. And so pursue a purely realist policy without ideals, American people won't support it. It, They may support it initially, they won't support it. You pursue an unrealistically idealistic foreign policy and overreach or, or don't protect America's interests, again, they won't support that. So I think that's, you know, the broader American tradition context. But I also think the world is becoming more dangerous with spheres of influence and authoritarian trends, but also the ability to um, target opponents, both domestically and foreign, you know, is growing as well. And so unless you want a world, you know, one of the reasons because
1: of technology,
0: because of technology, because there's just so many remote ways to one, find where a person is, but then second, to do harm to them. We don't want a world. And so finding ways to impose some restraint on that. So, for instance, one of the motivations for the really break with any attempt to do political assassinations that uh, we had in part of our history in the 50s and 60s, not as much as people tend to believe when you actually look at the historical record, but the break um, that Ronald Reagan the break said, that no. we made in the, in the seventies and then continued with Reagan and every other president since is this is just a bad, bad idea. You know, it's that no one's safe at the end of the day and technology is only making that worse. And so I think we're at a pretty critical juncture where restraining both friend and foe alike is, is, is pretty important.
1: Mike, thank you very much.